praise throughout all generations. May he be glorified through us forever to the ultimate ends, and be honored through us forever and for all eternity. Amen. The compassionate one, may he sustain us in honor. Amen. The compassionate one, may he break the yoke of oppression from our necks and guide us erect to our land. Amen. The compassionate one, may he send us abundant blessings to this house. Passionate one, may he send us Elijah the prophet. He is remembered for good to, be, to proclaim us to us good tidings, salvations, and consolations. Amen. Amen. Everyone, take may be God's will that this will not be shamed or humiliated in this world or in the world to come. May he be successful in all his dealings. May his dealings be successful and conveniently close at hand. May no evil impediment reign over his handiwork. May no semblance of sin or iniquity stop the path of salvation from this time and forever. Amen. Let's paragraph together. The compassionate one, may he bless me, my wife, and all my children and grandchildren, and all that is mine. Ours and all that is ours, just as our forefathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were blessed in everything, from everything, with everything, so we bless us all together with the prayer of blessing. Let us say, Amen. Rick, would you take the top of page 21? On high, may merit be pleaded upon them and upon us for a safeguard of peace. May we receive a blessing from Adonai and just kindness from the God of our salvation and find favor and good understanding in the eyes of God and man. First paragraph of faith. Uh, the compassionate one. Uh, I'm trying to say. The compassionate one. May he cause us to inherit the day that will be completely a Shabbat and rest day for eternal life. Amen. Right below the pink. The compassionate one. May he make us worthy of the days of Messiah Yeshua and the day and the life of the world to come. Amen. Amen. Uh, he, is a tower. He, is a tower. he is a tower of salvations to his king. He does kindness for his anointed to David and to his descendants forever. He who makes peace on uh, peace in his heights, may he make peace upon us and upon all Israel. Now respond. Amen. Fear Adonai, you, his holy ones, for there is no deprivation for his reverent ones. Young lions may want and hunger, but those who seek Adonai will not lack any good. Give thanks to Adonai, for he is good. His kindness endures forever. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Blessed is the man who trusts in Adonai. Then Adonai will be his security. I was a youth and also have aged, and I have not seen a righteous man forsaken with his children begging for bread. Adonai will give might to his people. Adonai will bless his people with peace. Amen. Pass your books to Josiah. All right. I will not belabor this so that we can get started. But... 28th of Tibet today. Uh, Rosh Kodesh is on Monday. That would be uh, Sunday evening. At which time you should be at Tower? <laughs> you should probably be uh, at the uh, Skrlak <laughs> 2 residence <laughs> so that you might celebrate with a man who has received his very first son. Yeah! <laughs> I'd like to point out yes, that his son will be the first Jewish male in this congregation. That's awesome. That is true. <laughs> Very cool. Very That's cool. True. You know, in about ten years, we may not have to say there is no, there is no. Praise God. You know, the some people will say that you cannot keep the Torah without community, and I agree with that. There are just so many things that we cannot do and so many things that are just lost if there is not the opportunity to be in community. Eight books in each box, guys. Eight books. Don't bend the pages. Um, so now, 
we've got an opportunity within the same month, thank you, um, to have a Brit Milah, or a ceremony thereof, and a Bat Mitzvah. These are the things that make practicing the faith we practice so wonderful. So uh, it becomes more than just showing up in Joe's living room. You know, it's about life cycle. I beg your pardon? It's about the, the cycle of life. It is. It's exactly right, Morgan. We, uh, we watch as they're born, the bris, then the wow, baj or bar, and then the uh, chupa. We haven't had to bury anybody yet, have we? This, we haven't done that yet. Okay, it's not We've done yard signs. <laughs> so, yeah, let's keep that cycle long. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost done. We have we have sat Shiva at least three times. Right? For Greg, for me, and for Johnny. We don't get to we went to her, her grandmother's funeral, I think it was, right? That's exactly right. So, yeah, we, we've seen a lot of this stuff. So I want to I help you with your calendar now, just very quickly. I know you don't have your calendar in front of you, but I want you to just start thinking about this because we're going to be repeating this since you get the, 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 the sense of it. First off, Rosh Kodesh is a day where traditionally the men do everything possible to make sure that the women don't have to do their normal labor. And I am so very remiss in this. The Gregorian calendar of 2016, I plan to make a difference and a change there. So um, my wife you know, may be going to Asheville on Tuesday, I don't know, but um, or Monday, whatever it is. But uh, I'm going to try and and see if I can't do that because she's constantly ever-present and ever-working on my behalf. Uh, let's see, my daughter's birthday is on the 25th, but who cares, really? Come on. Well, that's also two wish about, so that kind of happens. And two wish about, how about that? Where is my daughter? daughter? There she is. She's going to be 21 years old. Whoa. Shabbat's a good month to have been born. <laughs> Sounds like you want to mark that with the fruit of vine, since that is one of the seven species. We do have a. She can, she can do some lachaims now. That's right. <laughs> That's right. We do have a federal holiday in there, but really who cares? Okay, so. Robert E. Lee's birthday. Yeah. I don't have that on my calendar, but I'll get that changed. Yes. Um, I do want to bring to your attention that, uh, as I said earlier, kind of go into a, a, a lay layoff period where there's no real holidays and celebrations and so forth um, for uh, February and, uh, and for March. But I, as the second Adar month begins um, at the beginning of March, that, that's where we're going to hit Purim uh, on the 16th or I beg your pardon, the 23rd, 24th kind of thing. So uh, that's in the middle of the week. And then we get into April, and as you know, there are four special Sabbaths leading up to Passover that remind the people in a temple society what they need to do, right? So we've got uh, uh, Shabbat uh, Zachor, where we remember to forget, to remember, to forget, to remember, to forget. Thing. Um, we'll talk about it later. Shabbat Torah, um, that of course would be for any of us who have buried anyone. And then Shabbat HaKodesh, which is astonishingly, Shabbat HaKodesh for the first time in quite a while, 
is actually on a Shabbat. There is no Shabbat. Um, well, then we got Shabbat Haggadol, and um, Pesach begins on a Friday night. On a Friday night. Now, for your preparations, just to think about it, I know, four months ahead, but just so you can't say you were caught unawares or off guard, and still, some of you will say, oh, yeah, I really didn't realize. Right. Shabbat is on a Friday night. Pesach is on a Friday night. And if you're doing second Pesach the next night, it's at the end right after Havdalah. You have no time for prep for any of this. Your Thursday is going to be bewildering. <laughs> I just want you to be prepared. Also, uh, keep so. in mind that Pesach um, Shabbats are not like Sukkot. It's not the first and the eighth. It's the first and the seventh. So the following Friday, not Saturday, will yeah, also right. be a Shabbat. You might want to ask that off. And that's work. a day off. That's yeah. the 22nd of April. And there is no Shabbat call Halloween. There is no Shabbat Kol Hamoed for Pesach this year because there's no Shabbat in between in the midst of the week because it actually starts on the Shabbat. Well, I prepare food for two days on the Thursday. Exactly right. That's what I'm saying. You, you've Start got. Start working now. <laughs> Start working now. Yeah, that's why I'm four months ahead. You know, I'm trying to do the best I can to help you out here. All right. So that's um, that's the deal. 29th is a uh, Friday. You're going to want to ask for that off. Um, and I think, I think that's all. We have no word on the traditional, oftentimes repeated, many years repeated Purim party, but I don't want to put anybody on the spot <laughs> just in case. There we might are be even more unsure of his schedule for March this year, so I will let you know when we we are waiting with bated breath, and I think most of us are willing to have to early. Okay, there it is. So that's going to be a whole month early. Our run for him. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see what happens there. Um, yeah, Purim is a month ahead. Purim Kitan, the small Purim, is added when we have a dark two. So you're in there, just like we have. Uh, Pesach Shani, a month later, for those that were uh, unclean and unable to do it. Any questions on the holidays, the calendar, anything coming up? No, but question on what the labor means. <laughs> What'd she say? It was irrelevant. <laughs> it was irrelevant. Yeah, speak up when you talk. <laughs> now that I've not repeated myself at all and therefore have not belabored this point, I shall sit. She's speaking up for her husband. I guess so. Gee whiz. My turn. All right. Okay. Don't belabor it. Don't belabor it. All right. Not to belabor too much. Okay. So, we are in Parashat Vaira, which is different from Vaira. Yeah. Um, which got very confusing, especially if you're trying to type it in English. Uh, the, the, the reason why it's confusing, of course, is the two, the two names are related. They both came from the same root. One is Antisah, and one is Antipir, or Antipir, uh, from Hashem talking to Moses. Uh, the last parasha ended as a to be continued. Um, if you were following along uh, at home, um, you saw that, that Moses ends the last parasha discouraged. He had gone to Paro and had said, let my people go. And just like God had said, Paro said no. Um, but Paro didn't respond the way that Moses expected. Moses had gone into it, I think, with, with the expectation that it would, kind of, it would kind of be a short story. 
I think that I think Moshe walked into this whole situation. God had said, "You're going to say, let people go." Pharaoh's going to say, "No, I'm going to judge them. I'm going to tell him if you don't let my firstborn go, I'm going to kill your firstborn, and then Pharaoh will let them go." And I think in Moses' mind, it was going to go something like that. He was going to say, "Let people go." Pharaoh's going to say, "No." God was going to speak to Moses and tell him, "You don't let my people go. I'm going to kill your firstborn." Pharaoh's going to say, "No." Firstborn was going to die, possibly on the spot. Pharaoh's going to go, "Never mind. You can go." This didn't happen. Instead, we get a long meal to refrigerate all right, of it. Exactly. Um, Moses wasn't counting on the long meal or the four glasses of wine, <laughs> but he also wasn't counting on Pharaoh responding by making the, the situation tougher. And I think that really caught Moses off guard. Even though he knew Pharaoh was going to say no, he didn't realize it was going to go that way. And so Moses was very discouraged. And he comes to God and he says, what are you doing? This is me paraphrasing, but pretty close to the sentiment. What are you doing? You said you'd let the people go and you haven't done that. This parasha opens with God's answer. God has briefly said, I'm gonna, now you're going to see what's going to happen. And then we get, and it, you know, you can kind of see like, flames and fire and Moses kind of doing this and then the screen goes black, you know, to be continued. This week, we're back in that scene and God is speaking to Moses and the sages are critical of Moshe here. They say that his question of God was illegitimate. He had no right to question God. Um, Rashi points out that God was like, look, Abraham, I told him to sacrifice his firstborn son and he didn't question me, but here you are asking me questions. And if you think about it, um, uh, a lot of times in the scripture, especially in the, in the more... Um, in, in certain denominations of our faith, there is this encouragement to be very open towards God, to kind of just sort of um, uh, vent at times. And David is very good at that. And I think that David really nails the spirit of what that's supposed to look like in the Psalms because he will vent. But he very rarely, in fact, I don't know if he ever does, ends with a question. He almost always portrays, he, he vents to God, but then he always kind of backs himself off. And he kind of realizes that's not really the way that things are. You know, and I have learned my lesson, and I know that you're good, and so on and so forth. Why are you cast down on my soul? You know, he always he vents to God, but he he understands he understands the end, the right result at the end. Moses doesn't do that. Instead, Moses's problems he just kind of stops with this question, and God's not not happy with that. Also, interestingly enough, and this is kind of a little bit of my interpretation, but in looking at some of the commentary on Kabat's website, they point out um, from uh, Safat Emmet is the passage they cite from that Moses makes this interesting juxtaposition. And this is kind of where I want to focus here before we get going. Pharaoh, he says to God, the people of Israel didn't listen to me. Why is Pharaoh going to listen to me? And if you think about it, from our perspective, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, the people of Israel are his allies. They're the people he's leading. They're the people who are supposed to follow him, right? And so Pharaoh is his enemy. So obviously, if he can't win over his friends, how is he going to win over his enemy? But the sages point out that actually... Um, that there's, a, there's like a logical point there because they note that previously we had learned the reason the children of Israel didn't listen was because of the burden that they were carrying and the shortness of breath, it says, the, short, the shortness of spirit. In other words, they're slaves. Life is really hard. That's why they're not listening to Moses. Pharaoh is not a slave. So, in fact, they, that, um, Safar Emmet goes on to say that actually Moshe was not talking about the, just, the juxtaposition between these are my friends and... Um, Pharaoh is my enemy, but more the idea that if I can't win over the people I'm supposed to lead, how can I properly represent them to Pharaoh? But the point that I'm trying to say is that our mindset and our understanding of reality is that Pharaoh can't be swayed because the people can't be swayed. And I think that if you look at God's response to the situation, God is saying you're totally wrong in the way that you look at reality. And that's what I wanted to just focus on here. I think the lesson that we gather from this is that 
our understanding of facts is normally correct. So we, we, we grasp when bad things are happening. We're not wrong to say that bad things are happening. Our mistake is usually your interpretation of what's happening. And our error is normally that we look at the circumstances and we view it through the lens of the people won't listen to me, how will Pharaoh listen to me? And God's looking at it through, I'm in charge. I told you Pharaoh was going to listen to you. And that's the reality we're in. So when we read Yeshua saying, in this world you will have trouble, we, we, send to, we tend to forget that. We tend to lose sight of that. So when bad things happen to us, we go, why is this happening to me? I don't understand. And God's uh, really telling us, no, 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 I told you that was going to happen, but I said it's going to work out for your good. And that's the reality that we have to change the mindset. Mm -hmm. um, if you think about it, it's sort of like a little kid having a nightmare. When the kid wakes up from their dream, the reality is blurred. The, all they know is that their heart is pounding, their adrenaline is rushing, they're in a bit of a sweat. There must be a monster in the room. That's the only explanation for how they feel. And they just saw in their mind's eye what was very real, something very frightening that had happened. Mm. But that doesn't mean that there's a monster in the room. It just means that that's their interpretation of the reality they're experiencing, but their interpretation is wrong. And I think that our lesson we have to gain from this is that we have to look at it through the correct lens, which is that God is in charge and everything is good. And if you, it's kind of like that, that old saying that I really don't care for uh, until now. Um, the people can only hurt you if you let them hurt you. I used to think that was kind of a silly thing because I'm an emotional guy. My wife will agree to this. Um, and I tend to, I tend to, things, things hurt, you know, I feel that. I, I get that pain. And I used to think, well, that's only the thing that, you know, super confident people say because they just bounce it, off, it bounces off of them and they don't care, you know. And I, I'm not that guy, you know. The man to my right, he's one of those guys. Just bounces off of him. I'm not. And I don't, that's why I always seem like it was an unfair statement. But actually the point of it, I think, is going back to what I'm saying here, that the reason why this, the, the, the sage's teachings, we're reading Hope It's Kind, they talk about this idea, somebody insults you. How do you interpret it? It's not that they didn't, do, that they didn't happen. You can't say, well, that doesn't matter to me. It's just how do you interpret it? You say, oh, God's trying to teach me something. And that's the idea. So the idea that people can only hurt you if you let them, same thing with circumstances. It only hurts you if you let it because it's all about how you interpret it. If you see it as a chance to grow, as a chance to learn about Hashem, if you see it as God working out his good in your life, whether you can see it or understand it or not, then it's not bad. It can't be bad. In fact, instead of asking God, why me, you should be asking God, what am I supposed to learn? Because the answer to why me is always the same. He loves us. God gives you a good job because he loves you. God takes the job away because he loves you. Everything that happens to you is out of God's love. Therefore, there is no re there's no reason to be lamenting. There's no reason for it to be bad. The only way you lose is if you let it pull you down. And you let it, and you view it as negative. One of the things my dad said when I was looking for a job before we could get married, I was feeling really down. It took me nine months to get um, a job that would let us get married. That was a big deal. And one of the things he said that really stood out to me is he says, it's such a shame for people to waste bad experiences bad circumstances. Because what it means is if you let it get you, then it's bad. Then you lose. Your father's a wise man. Isn't that a wise? That's, that was very wise. So if you let it get to you, then you lose. But if you learn something from it, then it's never a loss, and therefore you always win. Amen. And that's what I think that God wants Moses to get here. God says to him, this is what's going to happen. It doesn't go the way that Moses thought it was going to. <clears throat> Moses throws up his hands. But we're about to read how God uses this very event to totally rearrange history. Every single one of the six remembrances that God says, remember this, remember this, remember this, remember this, that, that Jews pray like every single day, happens in this story. It starts with the Exodus and it carries through throughout the wilderness. 
All the most important moments in the history of the nation of Israel happen here, and they happen because of the way that Pharaoh treats them. And that, to me, just reminds us that we need to change our perspective and look at it from a different way of seeing it. Yes, sir. Uh, by the way, thank you for your comment. That was very kind. Um, the, the notion that, that the world uh, works this way is so lost on us. When you think that, and it's very true, I mean, it's not, even if you don't know God, you know the way that, that it works is this way. Because those who are, are ill have hope to get better. Those who are uh, poorest have hope to improve. If you consider it, those who are healthy are afraid of getting ill. Those who are wealthy are afraid of losing their wealth. I mean, who buys insurance? It's not people who don't have money. It's people who have the money. So we know the world works this way. And knowing the world works this way ought to give us a new, renewed uh, uh, hope that God, that hope is, in fact, what God gives both those who are well-off and those who are not. Hope not in circumstances, but in Him. Right. Absolutely, because that's what it really boils down to. We, we pray Hashem Echad. Well, the understanding of Hashem Echad is that there's only one God. In fact, there's only God. The whole rest of reality that you see isn't really real. It's happening because God let it happen. The only reality that counts is that God is in charge. Everything else is secondary. Throughout this portion, you are going to see what looks like a battle of wills. God says, let people go. Pharaoh says no. God puts a little more pressure on Pharaoh. He buckles a little bit, and then he says no. If we stop the story at the end of chapter 9, it would be a humanist tale of the greatness of man against God. I mean, this is the story of, of uh, and we see so many times in movies, you know, the, all the Clash of the Titans. It's all about little tiny half-man taking on the great pantheon, and of course the man wins, because that's our vision of reality. But what actually is happening, if you read the story based on the way that God told Moses how it was going to go, and you follow it closely, this is not a battle of wills. This is a game of chess in which God's playing himself. Pharaoh isn't even saying no. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Even Pharaoh's act of will becomes subservient to God, even when he thinks he's defying him. So the idea of Hashem Echad takes on a whole new perspective, to the point where um, Judaism teaches that even, even our evil inclinations are ultimately subservient to God. They to some, are ultimately about teaching us. They're about growing us. The only free will that God gives us is our ability to choose what happens. But everything around us that's occurring is God's intended plan. Yes, sir? I, I think it's important that we recognize somewhere in this portion that God makes it clear. I, I could have just snuffed you out. The only reason we went through this game is so that you and everyone else would know my power and would know that you need to glorify me. And if you miss that line, you come out with the wrong conclusion, like you said. The bottom line is, he is in charge. He is God, and he controls which one of us gets sick, which one of us gets well, which one of us lives, and which one of us dies. If, if you don't get that, you're, you're living in some dream world that you know, we can't help you with. Well, and that's ultimately why I think it goes back to in the, one of the things we say a couple times during the prayers is uh, the Torah, it's ways and ways of pleasantness and its paths are peace. All its paths are peace. And I think that for those of us who spend time in the Word and, 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 and seek Hashem, try to serve Him, and things, big things don't go away. You know? 
I wanted a job to get married. To me, that's a, that's a done deal. It's like God wants me to get married, surely. You know, she's beautiful, and I think this is the right way it should go. And God says no, and they don't understand why. We want to have kids. Again, be fruitful, multiply. How is that, like, missed? But God says no. But the answer then comes back to, it's like, well, how are you seeing it? What are you viewing it as? How are you perceiving God's actions? Because God's always good. God's always doing the right thing. It's always part of his plan. And in this particular case, even with Egypt, I mean, because you're right. He makes the point saying, if I just wanted to kill you, I would just kill you. There's nothing holding me back there. But my, my goal is I want to teach you. I want to show you, my enemies, who I am. And I want to proclaim my name throughout the universe. And that is why we're here. Then the ways of the Torah become peace because it's not about having peaceful circumstances. The most righteous oftentimes suffer more than anyone. But the point is that their ways are ways of peace because they trust Hashem. And that solves everything. And then, as I said earlier, nothing is bad. Yes, sir? It seems that maybe we get the benefit of this exercise we know how it affects Israel, but we get the benefit of the exercise because in the prophets it tells us that Egypt is God's firstborn mm-hmm. and that he loves Egypt. Mm-hmm. And in fact, he's going to redeem Egypt. And Egypt actually will be a place of praising God. We can't see that now. We may not have been able to see it for you know, 3,000 years, but that was the plan and it still is the plan. Amen. Right, yeah. It's definitely, God has a bigger picture story here um, than what we can see even just in this account. Yes, sir. Uh, moving on. Are you Absolutely. Moving? Okay, continue. so I'm in uh, Exodus 7 as it opens in verse 1. And Adonai said to Moshe, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. And uh, I, I just, when I read that, and I'm reminded of what uh, Janet read uh, earlier uh, from the uh, apostolic writings I'm reminded that the beast mm-hmm. The, mm-hmm. The, the false God if you will had a false prophet you see in Revelation 16 13 as Janet read I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs and I was astonished, as I, I'm sure everyone was every year, that all of these, oh, maybe it's a gun. No, probably not. They don't, they don't ship guns like that, do they? Um, that these, uh, yeah, <laughs> that uh, there was such a parallel between these plagues that will be thrown out, right. if you will, and the ones that we've, we've just read about. Um, but it was in uh, chapter 19, and verse 20 of Revelation, the beast was captured, hmm. and with it, it is for me. How about not a gun, sorry. It's not a gun. And with it, the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Um, you know, to your to your earlier point about God being in charge and, and could have blown him away, and, and you know, this is the reality that God is the reality. Um, when we read about, as Rick was saying, Egypt being dealt with by God in what sounds like a favorable way in the in the last days, right? And and then dealing with Babylon and so forth, and and now with this false prophet and a beast and. For those of us in a messianic 
mode, we see Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, our teacher, as that first redeemer, mm -hmm. paralleling the ultimate redeemer, Messiah Yeshua. Mm -hmm. And uh, here in Revelation, we see a, a parallel. You know, the sages have long said, what happened to the fathers right. is going to happen to the children of Israel. And, mm -hmm. and here we see what's going on, and Aaron is like a prophet to Moses, who is like God to Pharaoh. Right. And we're going to have exactly the same thing going on in the future. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we, we mention it during the Pesach Seder. We should pay attention. What's happened here in the past will happen again in the future. And in fact, it'll go, it'll be even greater. The sages say that the latter redemption will be greater than the first. Exactly right. So does the prophets. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, we read it every year. We go through this over and over and over again, and I think that, you know, we should we should wake up and, and take notice. This Moses is like unto my Messiah. Mm -hmm. This Aaron is the prophet to that one. Hmm. When we talk about Elijah constantly, and then in the in the Torah service, um, we're mentioning him. He's remembered for good and so forth. So. Um, there's, there's nothing new under the sun. We need, to, we need to pay attention now so that when these things start to unfold in our world and with names of countries and, and places around the planet that we are familiar with, that we right. recognize that this is a parallel that we've seen before. Yeah, and it's interesting you mentioned the parallels. Um, in uh, in the, the commentary, just taking a half step back from the beginning of chapter 7, Kizukini says in verse, chapter 6, verse 20, they talk about Amram took him, Yochaved, his father's sister to wife. And the question is, this doesn't seem right. Moses is the hero. Why would we have him come from a little marriage there? Oops, where it's oops. like, that's not even allowed later when Moses gives the Torah. So it's like, we know that that's, like, that's a little hinky. And, um, and actually, they, uh, the comment was really interesting. They said, because no man is appointed as an authority over the community unless there is something objectionable in his past lest he lord it over the community. And they immediately cite King David, according to tradition, part right. of the problem with right. David, that he was considered to be illegitimate because of his descendancy from Ruth. And then there was also a secondary like question about his legitimacy because of his birth story being a little complicated. And, and it's didn't like, we have a legitimacy problem with Yeshua? Well, yeah, so it sounds kind of familiar. It's like, turns out everything's fine, but at the time, it was like, well, she's pregnant. They're not married. Mm, I don't know how that happened. You know, and of course, you know, everyone believes you when you say that the Holy Spirit impregnated you. I mean, that's, that's a normal thing to happen to people. So the point is that it's so fascinating that going back to the parallels, Moses is that picture of that first Redeemer, and Yeshua intentionally it lines up with things from that because we're supposed to see the overlap. We'll get to more of it later um, to see again that Yeshua is making the statement, I am the prophet like in the Moses. Yes, sir. Well, and just kind of picking up on that idea of this parallel, um, back at the beginning of the Parsha, there's this interesting statement, right, where God spoke to Moshe and he said to him, I am Adonai, and I appeared to Abraham, to Yitzhak, and to Yaakov with the name El Shaddai, but with my name, I did not make myself known to them. Mm -hmm. But we have a difficulty here because, in fact, they did, did use that. <laughs> right. Go back 
in, in various passages in, in Darshim. So how do we understand this, and what's, what's, the, what, what's the reconciliation? Um, there's a, without getting too, you know, um, too Kabbalistic, uh, and there's a really beautiful gematria, which probably nobody appreciates besides me, but, um, but one of the explanations, one, one of the explanations, the more esoteric explanations, is that um, Yidkevake is is understood, or if you use Hasidic parlance, Havaya is understood to have, there's a higher Havaya and a lower Havaya, meaning that um, that God that God would, um, has a, a, a revelation of himself that is perceived, that can be perceived, mm -hmm. and namely that is um, essentially the God of a God of miracles, basically, mm -hmm. right? Okay. And clearly, we can see in the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, where God clearly revealed Himself uh, through miracles in, uh, at different points and times in their lives, right? And that is that's that's the um, that's the lower um, the lower uh, revelation of God's name, um, but the higher revelation of God's name, which apparently. He did not ever reveal to the patriarchs. Is the is is the is the essence of Hashem that is not perceivable by any kind of natural sense, or it's like it transcends hmm. it it transcends even supernatural. If you can kind of wrap your head around that, so the idea is that Moses is special hmm. because he is the first one that's getting. A revelation of this higher essence of Hashem, hmm. Um, hmm. of what the the essence of the the name, right? Um, and again, there's a really cool gematria that really kind of ties this neatly back to Messiah. But essentially, the idea is that Mashiach is the one who will have the true revelation essence hmm. of this higher name of Hashem. And so, by the by, Moshe being the first one to ever get a glimpse of that revelation, again, it's that parallel that yeah. he is he is Messiah at this time. That's right for all intents and purposes. Hmm. He is Mashiach. In fact, say to say, he's Mashiach, right? So, and okay, if he's Mashiach, then Mashiach has this higher understanding of Hashem. The patriarchs did not have. They had this lower understanding of Hashem, which was this a God of miracles. Mm -hmm. right? So, um, so it fits with that parallel. Yeah. He's equipping. He is the redeemer who's about to go before Pharaoh and redeem the people, and he goes fully equipped with a revelation, this higher revelation of Hashem and a prophet. Right. right. And, and it's interesting also to go into that that same concept, the uh, Hashem language. There definitely another thing I've heard is the idea that like God made all these promises to the patriarchs, with the exception of the miracle birth of, of Isaac, doesn't really fulfill them in their lifetimes. So Hashem, you notice in that passage when he says, I'm Hashem and I'll reveal myself, he then lays out a whole long list of actions that will say, and you will know, and you will know. And in fact, in the I wills that we are you know famous in Pesach, it, he concludes by saying, he goes through all these I wills, I will, I will, I will, I will, and then he says, and you shall know. 
He just said, I am Adonai. He also says, I will take you my people, I will redeem you from Egypt, so on and so forth. And then it says, and you shall know that I am Adonai, your God, who takes you out from the burdens of Egypt. In other words, it's like, well, of course we would know that. You're saying you're going to do it. But that's the point, I think, too, that like the idea is that he's saying to Moses, now is the time for me to act in a way that I've been prophesying, I've been promising up to this point, all these associations with the name Hashem, the, the, the supremacy over nature, the, the, the promises that I'm going to take you as a people, that I'm going to give you a land, this idea that I will be a god to a nation is a concept that he had, he had presented to Abraham, but he didn't know Hashem that way. Now the people of Israel are going to know Hashem that way, and that's one of the things he says over and over again to the Egyptians. He says, I will do this, and you will know. In other words, you can't comprehend this right now. You're not going to acknowledge this right now, but I'm going to do X, and then you're going to know, because you're going to see me do X. Yes, sir? Just to follow on what Greg was saying, and, and, and to tie into the uh, Messiah, uh, you know, we... As a programmer, a programmer that looks at another programmer's work and finds uh, the smallest amount of code to do the greatest amount of work yeah, is called so cool. finding elegance. Mm -hmm. Elegance is simplicity. Engineer finds that the greatest uh, height of engineering is simplicity. And, it, and it's in the se exactly what, what Greg was talking about. When we see miracles, miracles are wonderful, and that's what we're reading about here. But actually, that, that is a revelation of God that we, as human beings, actually can understand. Right. What we cannot understand is the simplicity. And the, what we would call in, in doctrine the humiliation or the humble beginnings of Messiah are precisely this issue. This is the matter of simplicity. The true revelation of God and Messiah was not found in his miracles. Those are not what we find him to be Messiah for his miracles. We think those are wonderful, but those aren't for us. The miracles are not to convince us who he is. Right. What we find to be most uh, worthy of our praise and honor, if you think about it, are the things where he appears to lose. Mm -hmm. Humble beginnings, a death, even a resurrection that can be, cannot be substantiated by anyone other than those that believe. <laughs> those are humble and simple and esoteric things that we cannot... We can't put our fingers on. And so when the, when the smart people of this world point their fingers at us and say, that's just stupid. The Greeks, it's foolish. We have to agree and say, that is the true revelation of God. Mm. And that which is as weak is revealed to be strong. That which is simple is revealed to be most wise. Well, I think that if you're going to pick the person to write the first five books of the Torah and to deliver the longest sermon in all of history, you pick someone you can't talk very well. That's right. <laughs> yes, sir. By the way, the Hebrew word for crazy, that's the same gematria. Really? That's exactly right. I'm sorry. Sugar? The sugar. Yeah. Sugar Mashiach. The same gematria as the there's a passage, I believe it's in Isaiah, don't hold me to that address, but there's a, one of the prophets, I'll say it that way, says that, referring to the time of redemption, that all that all Israel will know his name. That's right. Because mm. I'll say it's, it's the knowing of this higher level right. of, ah, okay. of Hashem, meaning that at the time of the final redemption, all Israel will have this greater revelation of the essence of Hashem. Amen. And, uh, and that's kind of cool. That's Very cool. cool. And that goes back to going to the redemption parallels. 
at the end, that you have that passage in Zechariah where it says like the the Isaiah everyone is going to have visions and they're going to see. Um, their young men will dream driven visions and, and women and the young women will, will will see things. You know, it's like this idea, this prophecy, a spirit of prophecy is going to be poured out on all the people. Peter quotes this in Acts chapter two, and it's interesting that um, at the end of this story, when they go through the Red Sea, the sages teach that the people of Israel as a nation had an experience of prophecy that was like unprecedented and hasn't been repeated. That it was the entire nation understood reality the way that it really is. They saw God as he is, as much as we can comprehend in this planet, to the point where what they, they, they understood was almost like God's entire purpose for mankind. Like right there, boom. They grasped it in that moment. Um, and that idea that repeating of the, the first redemption parallels the latter redemption, the latter redemption is going to be the same thing as you're, as you're alluding to, this idea that all of God's people will have this revelation that will be complete, and they all will know, as he says, and they shall all know Hashem. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I was just thinking about um, the word saved. Like this, where the Exodus story is about the people being saved from Egypt, and it is an amazing salvation. So that is a very Jewish concept mm -hmm. because they were saved. But um, but like I grew up. Only, kind of only thinking of that as a spiritual word. Like, mm -hmm. well, I, I was saved, mm -hmm. but very, it was totally spiritually, not right. physically at all, and how it really works both ways, and I think that goes along with parallel of Moses as right. Messiah, yeah. that um, we are saved, and, and that they were saved. Um, and it's a... But I think most Jewish people understand it only very much only that side. Right. I mm -hmm. asked somebody once, like, but are you saved? And um, it was uh, a, Jewish, a Jewish guy, and he said, um, of course we were saved. We were all saved from, from Egypt. I mean, yeah, we, all of us are. And, um, and to be also true. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's, okay, it's interesting to think about. Well, it's interesting you say that because the sages actually do do a spiritualization of this redemption. Um, they, uh, and so you're right. It's like the, 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 the surface level is the physical. But there's even these allusions, these hints of saying that this salvation is more than just a physical salvation. And what we're going to get, obviously, from, from this Mashiach is, ironically enough, almost in reverse. It's like this one starts physical and ends spiritual because we get out of Egypt and then we get the Torah. And this is that redemption of the people spiritually from the depths that they had plunged in idolatrous Egypt up to the heights of being able to receive the Torah from God himself. Absolutely. But then we get the inversion with Yeshua in, in his experience because the first salvation is spiritual-based. It's about a revelation of God and allowing us uh, weak, simple humans to be able to experience God. But then it like flips itself around because the second salvation of Yeshua will bring will be a physical salvation. There will be a spiritual salvation, as we're talking about, but the, the big picture, the one that everyone's going to notice, is Messiah reigning in Jerusalem and all of humanity obeying him. But that's going to be different. His name will be one. So you're going to see, it's almost like there's this flip, whereas it starts physical and ends spiritual with Moses, and with Yeshua, it starts spiritual and ends physical, um, which is really, that harmonization is part of what we're here for is to, to bring those together, to make the spiritual reality match the physical, because that's the way that it was when we started, and that's the way that it should end. Interesting. You know, in last week's portion, um, Moshe was rejected by the people. Right, yeah. Right. And, and so, again, the parallels here are just incredible. Moshe, was Moshe at that time, was rejected, went away, came back. And even when he came back, they still were unsure. 
Great. And they were like, oh, what the first time you showed up, things didn't work out very well because we ended up worse with all this yeah. extra labor and you know. Why should we why should we believe you? Why should we who sent you? Well, you know. So I just think there's some there's some interesting interesting parallel there. Absolutely, there's a lot of really cool ones. And we're gonna keep it moving here. But um, the next thing of miracles is that God sends Moses and Aaron into, into Pharaoh. And um, to set the picture up, in every, in every movie uh, that seeks to, especially superhero movies, I feel like especially, they, uh, they always present the enemy as being greater than the hero, at least initially, because that's the whole point. We have some drama here. Um, Juliana really likes movies where the hero is like, he just dominates the whole time. If you watch a lot of older like um, James Bond kind of movies, that's just kind of the way that it goes. James Bond never loses. Like Pierce Brosnan never loses as James Bond. He always wins. And that's kind of like Daniel Ooh, Craig right. loses. This is the way that it should be. Yes, Daniel Craig loses. Julian doesn't like those as much. But, <laughs> okay. but the point is though that like in most movies we get create this this you know this this climax of sorts because the hero is supposedly weaker but then they ultimately triumphs by proving to be stronger. Um, but they have to present a very vicious and, and a powerful villain to show you how great the hero is. So Moses walks into Egypt, and the, the Midrash goes off on this, and they're like, Egypt is known for magic. Like, if there was ever a place that you would not want to do miracles, it would be Egypt. Right. And the, the parallel, and so Pharaoh basically mocks Moses, being like, would you go into, like, a fisherman's village and bring fish? Like, that's stupid. We're the best in the world. Why are you doing miracles here? Give me those five-year-olds. Throw it on your staff. Make a turn to the snakes. You know, and that's basically the way that it plays out in the Midrash, is that the Egyptians have this phenomenal supernatural ability because they have tapped into... They're, they're sort of the Silicon Valley of magic, if you will. They are the experts in how to manipulate the natural world with supernatural um, spells and whatever else. And, but God sends Moses in here on purpose. In fact, it's actually really funny. The, the sages point out that um, they throw it on the staffs, all the other guys throw down their staffs. They'll turn to snakes. And then if you read, notice, notice the word that looks wrong in this passage. Each one, this is verse 12 of chapter 7. Each one cast down his staff, and they became snakes. Okay, you got the sin in your head. And the staff of Aaron swallowed their staffs. Snakes should have swallowed their snakes. The snakes should have swallowed their snakes. So, in fact, what the, uh, the, the, um, the sages say, the Midrash com comments that God basically is looking at the situation and saying, well, as cool as it would be to have my guy's snake eat their snakes, that's not impressive enough. We'll have my guy's snake turn back into a stick and then swallow their staffs. It's like the staff ate the other staffs, which is really kind of like, oorah, that's my guy. <laughs> he can do anything that he wants to do. Well, there's also, in the Hebrew... The word for staff is mate, uh, which is spelled mem tet hey. And there's a little bit of play here in the Hebrew because the middle word is the is the middle letter I should say is the letter tet, which is a snake. Is a snake. <laughs> it's funny. In other words, in the word for in the word for staff is the snake. That's yeah, funny. The snake also, by the way, is Mashiach. That's right, he is. By the way, on the, on the snake story, this is a really interesting comment, and I really appreciated this. Um, Lubavitcher read, he looks at the story, and he actually tries... One of the things about Midrash, if you've ever read the Midrash, it gets weird. I mean, there are some really bizarre stories in the Midrash, 
uh, Judah had hair that could pierce through his clothes and chest hair that was made of steel or something, which is really cool. But the point, though, is that um, the point of this is that the Midrash can seem weird, but we have to understand what the purpose of Midrash is. And the purpose of Midrash is partly to impress, is to impress us with great stories. That's part of it. But the main goal is to teach us a lesson. We're supposed to learn something from the Midrash, and actually the Midrash is an incredibly powerful tool to help us learn those lessons and get them to stick in our minds. So Lubavitcher Rebbe has a really cool drosh on this staff swallowing other staffs, which on the surface of it looks like just maybe an upping the ante on the miracle or perhaps something really weird that we don't really aren't really comfortable with. But actually, Lubavitcher Rebbe says that, um, he quotes that passage I mentioned earlier, the Torah's ways of, ways of pleasantness and all its paths of peace. And he says that as, as men and women of Torah, we, we are supposed to be about peace. But here, Moses and Aaron, Moses is like the king of peace, and Aaron is like known for being the ultimate peacemaker. Like, he is the peaceful guy. And God sends the, uh, the humblest man of all time and the ultimate peacemaker to level Egypt. And it's like, that doesn't seem in connection with their character. That's not who they are. And Lubavitcher Rebbe's point is to say that this is sometimes required. Good men and women sometimes have to be snakes. We have to go in and wipe out the enemy in whatever format that may take. That may be, on occasion, serving in the military or defending your family against someone physically. Yeah, yeah. It may sometimes also take the form of simply being the guy that stands up to people. You know, Being Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and standing up to the king of Babylon and saying, no, we're not doing that. And sometimes we have to be the gentle one who kind of steps back into the shadows. But sometimes we're called to be, to be snakes, as it were. But the Lubavitcher Rebbe says that notice they, they turn back into staves to swallow the other snakes. In other words, they acted like snakes, but they weren't snakes. It didn't change who they were. This goes back to Yeshua's point. Yeshua says to his wow. disciples, I want you to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. In other words, sometimes you have to act like a snake. Sometimes in this world, because it's incomplete, you have to be tough, mm -hmm. harsh, even... You know, True. Uh, shrewd. You have to be sneaky. You might have to act in a way that is not the type of person you should be, generally speaking. Your character should be different. But sometimes, for a greater good, you have to act in a way that might be perceived as being snake-like. But you should never change. Right. Sometimes you have to lie to people. You have to do things that are whatever. The point, though, is that it shouldn't change who you are. And I think that when you look at the, the heroes of like the armed forces, for example... Are the men and women who doesn't change who they are. It, it, it's, in fact, for a lot of the ones who are really good guys, it's it's traumatizing. It's something they have to deal with. They don't really know how to how do you how do I justify the fact that I was forced to take someone's life? I know it was right, but I still feel bad about it because it's not what I wanted to do. It's what I had to do. And that idea is, I think, the, the lesson we get at this portion that sometimes you have to do things that are very hard, but it shouldn't change who you are. You should continue to be the gentle peacemaker that Moses and Aaron really are but at the same time, sometimes being the tough guy who has to throw down the enemy. Wow. In keeping with the, the idea that the snake is Messiah, I mm. see a picture here of the real Messiah casting judgment on the false Messiahs, as it were. In other words, <laughs> in other words these other, these other, you know, these other staffs you know, present themselves as as a, as a snake. Right, right. They look as like a, him. as Messiah, but they're not the real Messiah. Not the real deal. They're not the real deal, and the real Messiah will swallow up, as it were, will judge those false messiahs. 
Absolutely. And we get that here. You know, um, the next miracle that God has them do is go down to the, to the river and they make it blood. Well, the Nile, of course, as we all know, is like a god of Egypt's big deal. But God also, the tradition also holds that they're kind of exposing Pharaoh as well, literally, because apparently Pharaoh would go down to the Nile to <clears throat> relieve himself. But this was part of his, like, mythos. He was like, he was a god. He didn't actually have human needs. And Moses keeps showing up in his bathroom, you know, every now and again. <laughs> it's kind of like, will you leave me alone? But um, the point being, though, is that God is humbling Pharaoh throughout this whole thing. He's showing, you're not really who you think you are. You think you're God, but I'm really God. Also, cool story here. The, the, the Midrash goes, or the, the sages talk about this concept of the blood, right? So the Nile turns into blood. And tradition, it says that it will even be in the cups, right? Even in the vessels. So tradition holds, this is a really cool story. They're like, so Egypt and an Israelite would drink from the same, the same pitcher. And the, the Israelite would spoon out some water. He'd take a sip, and the Egyptian would come out, and he'd get blood. So the Egyptian would tell the okay, Israelite, you, you get me some water. So he'd get him water, and he'd hand it to the Egyptian, and it would be blood. <laughs> so then they're like, hey, hey, we're going to drink from the same pitcher. So the, the Israelite would you know, take a gulp, and then the Egyptian would get a mouthful of blood. And it's like, it, but actually, if you think about it, this sounds familiar, but in a different way. I have another story. Uh, Yeshua's first miracle was to turn water into water. the blood of grapes. Yeah. It's red like blood. But notice how he flips it. It's so funny because if you see the story, he says, Get serve that water in the glass and take it to the steward. At no point do we see it turn into wine. Like, it just happens that when the steward takes a drink, it's the best wine he's ever had. Which goes back to my point earlier. Yeshua's intentionally paralleling these right. miracles and these stories from Moses because he's trying to show how he is like Moses. Now, in this case, um, Yeshua is gracious enough they're at a wedding. He turns it into wine and not blood. But the point is that he demonstrates the same power, the same authority that Moses has here, which is a huge deal because um, later on, we see this reference to the lice. And the, 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 the priests all go, this is the finger of God. We can't do this one. We can make the water into blood. I don't know why we wanted more of that. We can make more frogs. Again, I'm not sure why we wanted more of those. But the lice, like that's, that's freaky. We can't do that one. And they say, this is the finger of God. Yeshua does miracles. Get the same response. This is the finger of God. No one can do this one. And that's the idea. Moses is that first redeemer. Yeshua parallels him on purpose to show that he has the authority he has the power, he has the relationship to Hashem that Moses had an even greater. And we get that imagery there on purpose, so that way we're supposed to draw those connections. Remember, first redeemer, second redeemer. Uh, actually, I got Greg and then, and then Greg. <laughs> well, uh, this year was the first year that I, I had some commentary shed light on not only seeing the plagues as amazing demonstrations of power and miracles, but also as Hashem's justice. Because right. it's in the commentary that you see, like, why these specific plagues of all the things? And I've only heard like three classes so far, and it's like the first three. And they're just so interesting though, because like the first one with the blood, it was like all the, the whole idea behind that is like the measure for measure. The, is, the Egyptians would forbid any of the women to mikvah in the river like after that time. And so it was like a measure for measure that the whole river turned into blood, basically. And you also think the babies thrown into the Nile. It's kind of that similar parallel. Yeah. You're going to be bloodshed in the water. Well, I'll turn your water into blood. There you go. Yeah. And then the frogs, This I wouldn't have thought of this, but the commentary was saying, essentially what would happen is when the Israelites would cry out, the Egyptians were pretty much deaf to that. They, it didn't affect them in any way whatsoever. They just never paid attention to those cries. 
But when there were so many frogs, one of the worst parts about it was not just the presence of frogs, it was this like deafening croaking, like unified croaking throughout all of Egypt. And so it was like, the, we would drive them absolutely nuts. And it was like, basically, you didn't listen to the cries of my people, now you're going to listen to the cries of like a billion frogs. <laughs> and uh, then the, la the, the third one, which was interesting, the, the, the lice, that one was because the Egyptians would forbid all of the Israelites from ever taking a bath. They would like lock all the bathhouses, and they would never let them take a bath. And so that it was a very dirty environment among the Israelites, and that was like just amplified by a thousand when it actually came back on the Egyptians. Right. And so, anyways, so give me the worst, the worst version of that. Yeah, it's interesting on the um, the whole uh, frog account. Um, one of the things that the sages point out, and I thought this was really cool, it says the frogs will go into their ovens, and we're supposed to learn a lesson from this. They said that the, they said if if, if cold-blooded like amphibians have such faith in their creator, they would hop into ovens, which if you think about it logically is really quite terrifying. Um, then how much more so should we be willing to sacrifice ourselves for Hashem, and not just to die for Him, but to su submit ourselves, like our, our personalities and our characters and our livelihood. Because that's the real sacrifice. It's not just death, but it is living for God. It's a different concept. And they actually say that, that, that the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had the courage to go into the flames because of this story. Because the frogs hopped in the ovens, they said, well, if God can save frogs, he can definitely save us if he wants to. I thought it was really uh, quite an interesting point. Yes, sir. Just going back to the, the first miracle of Yeshua, the cool wedding of Cana in Cana. Um, the other interesting thing about that event, it's his first miracle, right? And um, what's interesting about that is, according to Jewish tradition, that the time of redemption, when we have the seidat, the seidat with this meal um, during Pesach, uh, at the time of Pesach, we have this meal, this future meal, when we're in the Messianic kingdom, and at this meal, Messiah is going to bring, he's responsible for bringing the wine to the meal. And it's wine preserved in, in, in grapes from the Garden of Eden. Oh, that's cool. So the fact that, uh, that Yeshua is at a wedding feast and he turns water into wine and this very delicious wine that everybody's like amazed, where did this stuff come from, right? That was basically saying to all of the Jewish people, I'm here. Right. Right. I'm here. Because this doesn't happen unless Messiah is That is very cool. Yes, sir. That same correlation. And this is something that the, the, there are great benefits to being a part of Messianic Judaism. Seeing the scriptures as one complete uh, volume and being inter interrelated. Fake intellectuals like Bart Ehrman and others who have who have diminished Christianity uh, and showed the fakeness of the apostolic scriptures or whatever else they come up with. Uh, Catholicism has never been friendly to uh, the Tanakh and the Torah. Never. They had they depicted Moses as something less than the apostolic scriptures do. Mm -hmm. uh, when we when we see the parallels between Moses and Messiah and the scriptures mm -hmm. back it up. The apostolic scriptures, those little hidden things, just like the just like the miracle of the water and wine, uh, Christianity, except for the very ancient Christianity, 
would never have made that connection. Mm. When we see those connections, that should validate the apostolic right. scriptures. Uh, when we see the correlation between Exodus and the book of Revelation, we should be all the more convinced of the validity and the authority of the apostolic scriptures. Instead, Christianity's intellectuals, and I'm obviously not all, but many, uh, whether they be at seminary or whether they be apostate like Bart Ehrman, their intellectuals have done exactly the opposite. They have taken the very sacred words of the apostolic scriptures and diminished them, mocked them even, and then still make a living on them. <laughs> I didn't hear you there. But you're right, because I think that's one of the things that when I was when I was wrestling with how do I, you know, how do you understand, how do you believe that God said all this, the the parallels, the the I like to read and I like to write. And as someone who likes to read and write, I love to see like the beauty of the written word and, and a good author will blend, they'll parallel, they'll draw connections. You'll get a story in chapter one that pulls into chapter forty seven and you'll you'll see those links on purpose because a good writer is about trying to create a world, a universe. And one of the things that's amazing is that the scriptures are written by dozens of different authors over a period of a couple thousand years. I mean, it's an incredibly long time frame of, of accounts, or about 1,500 years. Um, it's an incredibly long stretch of, of diversity that should have show forth in, in the Word. It should almost, at times, like blatantly contradict itself, in, but not necessarily in ways where, like, you're like, well, duh, didn't you read that? But more like, oh, well, that doesn't sound right. But instead, you don't really get that. Instead, you get the opposite effect. You get these weird parallels, these stories that interlock, and this you find these threads all the way through. And so, and in fact, where it does contradict, it's like, well, why does it contradict? Because actually, that's that was obvious. So obviously, they're saying something different. We need to like let's examine this more closely. And even in the contradictions, it looks just like the Torah's contradictions. In other words, it's the idea is let's highlight this. I'm going to talk about this on purpose. I want you to pick up on this. And so, in thinking about these. The, the apostolic scriptures, you're right. If you, as, you, as you look at, as you delve into the Torah and the Tanakh, you actually can grow in your faith regarding that section of, of the scriptures. Absolutely. Um, in the miracles, we got to keep moving here. Um, one of the things that's really cool throughout this whole story, you get all these miracles, all these things, and uh, boy, I tell you, it's just awesome how basically um, God acts like the, uh, the ultimate um, master of the universe, this whole story. I mean, you think about like uh, you know I, the the kind of the picture of like the the super powerful person presented in, in certain movies and things, that, um, whether it be a superhero or a mob boss or whatever. You know, it's like that. Whatever they say goes. It doesn't matter. Like like they have ultimate authority in this story, and and it's just incredible. Moses tells Pharaoh, "How would you like the frogs to leave?" And incredibly enough, Pharaoh says, "Tomorrow," and God says, "Okay, tomorrow they're going to go away." After that. God doesn't ask Moses when he wants him to leave. He just keeps telling, uh, doesn't ask Pharaoh when he wants him to leave. He just keeps telling Pharaoh, he'll stop tomorrow. Over and over and over again. It's almost like he just throws his you words back in his face each time saying, well, you said tomorrow worked for you, so that's how we're going to do it now. And, um, and throughout the story, it's just really amazing how even when, even when Pharaoh, Pharaoh gets what he asks for sometimes, but God does it in such a way to almost be like, I have so much authority, I can even do exactly what you want. Even maybe what you don't really want, what you said. And it's really, like, for example, one of the things that the commentary notes here is that, um, at, is, say, in verse 6 of chapter 8, it will happen as you say. Um, he has simply asked that the, uh, um, the frogs would depart, uh, but notice that he, didn't, he doesn't really explain it precisely what it's going to look like. He just kind of wants them out of the homes and everything. 
So God does that, and they all hop back into piles in the middle of like fields and stink. And um, in the uh, and the, the commentator notes, if Pharaoh had said, "I'd like them all to disappear, just totally disappear," they would have. But Pharaoh doesn't, so God does exactly what he asks for. Um, but the, yeah, throughout this whole account, you get that over and over and over again, time and time again. And notice, he starts to really up the ante. God comes to him, and uh, they're getting uh, Pharaoh is getting more and more panicky. And as we get towards the end with the with the the, the story of the hail. Um, that's when you start to see the power of God in like a maximum capacity. He's done all these miracles. He's laid waste to all of these things in Egypt. He can do whatever he wants. But then it's like in, in, in movies, oftentimes, a villain who's particularly malicious, and actually we see this with Laban. We'll talk about Pesach. You'll see this account there. The villain's desire will be to not only win over the hero, but to turn the hero into a villain. It's not enough to physically defeat them. He wants to actually essentially create a disciple. He wants to have the hero become like him to all, the ultimate validation of the villain. God, in a holy and righteous kind of way, does the same thing here. Not only does he do miracles in which he has complete and total authority over the land of Egypt, but he comes to the Egyptians and he says, tomorrow there's going to be this plague of hail, and it's going to be worse than anything you've ever seen before, and if you pull the people in, they'll be spared. What happens here? God actually starts to turn Pharaoh's own people to Hashem. In other words, it's like it's not enough that God would dominate them physically, but now he's actually having a transformation spiritually. And if you think about it, this goes back to what we're talking at the very beginning, this idea that God's goal was to redeem Egypt. God says, I will do all of this, not so that just the people of Israel will know that I am Hashem, but you, Pharaoh, you, Egypt, you will know that I am Hashem. So as God's working here, he's actually causing the people of Egypt to recognize who he is. And they're actually, we're actually getting hints of repentance here. And when the people of Israel leave at the end of the Exodus story, because they come out with a mixed multitude, a whole bunch of people from Egypt who weren't part of their group before said, whoa, after that, I'm with you guys. Mm-hmm. And as we, uh, as we get towards the end here, we're talking about the hail. One thing I, I, I want to talk to my dad. Um, the hail is like, is, is, is a ridiculous place. You read the scriptures very closely. It's just off the charts, unbelievable. Um, it talks about the hail coming down, and it's, there's fire in the midst of the hail. And the, the commentary goes on to say that, like, um, a true king, like, because you have two enemies who are subservient to the king, they fight each other all the time. But but a true king can come in and say, okay, you guys, gotta, we've got another enemy we've got to face. You two need to work out your differences and help me fight them, and they will. So God comes to fire and water and ice. And says, okay, you guys got to work out your differences and come together because we're fighting Egypt there. And they do. And there's fire inside of the hail, which I think is just unbelievable. Um, and it, it says that it's never happened in Egypt like this. It's like, I guess not. It's never happened anywhere. <laughs> but the sages say, this isn't the only time this happens. The sages say that when God said, I will take it away, that it froze in like midair. <laughs> And the same hail was used at the, uh, with Joshua later when it talks about stones or things falling from the sky against the, uh, the people in the land of Canaan when they're fighting them there. And then the sages go on to say that what's left over, that's saved for Gog and Magog. Because in Ezekiel, there is this, uh, and, and again, Revelation, as we read this morning, at the end of time, God casts these huge hailstones with fire. It's the exact same language. And the, comment, the Jewish commentary is actually tying this story into that end time state, just like the book of Revelation does, on purpose, because that parallel is supposed to be there. 
The latter redemption is going to parallel the first redemption. One other interesting thing, uh, it says here, as you get towards the end of chapter 9, um, God had promised that Pharaoh would harden his heart. He wouldn't listen. As things continued, uh, Pharaoh gets to, he crosses a line. And it says, after that, God hardened his heart. In other words, Pharaoh was beyond redemption at this point. He had, cro- he had been so refusing to repent so many times when he had the opportunity that God now essentially denies him the opportunity. He, he deadens the pain, I think is one way I've heard it being said. It's interesting, at the end of the story, at the end of chapter 9, as we get towards the end, talk about, I, I, I caught on to the hail mixed with fire. That was the coolest part of that play to me. Apparently, Pharaoh was most concerned about the thunder. Um, he mentions that one first. Um, the sages go on to say that uh, that's mostly because thunder is supposed to frighten the wicked. Um, but they note that at the end of the story, if you notice, it gets reversed. It says that Moses went out from Pharaoh, this is verse 33, Moses went out from Pharaoh, from the city, and he stretched out his hands to Hashem, and the thunder and hail ceased, and rain did not reach the earth. So notice the, par- the, 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 the order. Thunder, which is what scared Pharaoh the most. The hail, which is mixed with fire, which is scared me quite a bit. And then the rain is the bottom one. Those are the three. Then it says in verse 34, Pharaoh saw that the, the rain, the hail, and the thunder ceased, and he continued to sin. And you notice how that it flips it? It's exactly the opposite. And, um, and so uh, Rav Bahaya, uh shows, this is supposed to show that basically like, Pharaoh got over it. You know, he started with the, like, the least impressive thing that stopped. The rain stopped. The least scary thing. It's like, okay, so it's almost like it like, emboldened him. Oh, the rain stopped. Oh, yeah, and that, and that fire hail, that, that stopped too, and the thunder. Right, because I'm really in charge. You know, it's like he, and this is actually what oftentimes happens, if you think about it, um, you read you know, the stories throughout history of people, you know, having like a rock bottom experience or having something really awful to them happen, and you think to yourself, how did that not change them? How did they not, like, learn from that and become a different person moving forward? Mm-hmm. And usually because of something like this, it's because they explained it away. They, they, they minimized it. What was a miracle beyond measure get dismissed? You know, there's a really uh, kind of funny story, um, I think it's from uh, the singing rabbi, uh, Karl Bach, uh, or maybe a different one, but anyway, something like that. He's in a taxi in New York, and he talks to the guy, th- is it Karl Bach? Talks to the taxi cab driver, the cab driver says, um, oh, you're Jewish, you know, I'm also Jewish. I, I, boy, I tell you what, that Shema thing really works. I had a guy out in, uh, we were with some friends of mine, we were in Africa, he was getting, like, eaten by a python, and we thought, well, hey, look, you're going to die, probably. I've heard someone say that when Jews die, they say Shema. So this guy says Shema, and the python unwinds and slithers off. And, and the taxi driver was like, my friend who had the python around him, he, he immediately like went religious. He's now studying in a yeshiva in Israel. And Rabbi Kyle looks at the taxi driver, who's not religious, and says, oh, what about you? What, what, what happened to you? And he's like, well, the snake wasn't trying to eat me. <laughs> and so the ability to see a miracle but not see a miracle. And that's exactly what ends up happening. That hardening of the heart gets so bad for Pharaoh that he can't even, even the miracles that blow the minds of his, his, his magicians, even the miracles that terrify him, they don't change him. Because he's gotten to himself so far gone that now nothing will change his mind except him. And unfortunately, he's not letting it change. So, the Ron Call brings a, a slightly different uh, take on this mm-hmm. this event with the hail. Because if you if you go back to verse uh, twenty seven, and Paro sent and he called for Moshe and Aharon and he said to them, 
I've sinned. <laughs> you think? Yeah. This time. So, so <laughs> I've sinned. Hashem is the righteous one. Me and my people were, were wicked, right? So he kind of brings, he, he, he appears to be repenting. Like he's confessing, okay, yeah, I'm a sinner. You got me. Okay. So can you pre- please go pray to Hashem, and look at this, that the thunder and the hail stop, not the rain. Oh, right. He does not ask him to stop the rain. Okay. Why? Because the rain is good. They, right. They, they need the rain. The rain, you know, the rain is important, you know, in that part of the world. Well, it's important everywhere, but particularly that part of the world, right? Mm-hmm. So they need the rain. Uh, he doesn't want the rain to stop, <laughs> which is why when you get back over here, you know, it says that the the thunder uh, and the hail and the rain didn't reach the earth, right? And then it reverses and said, and, and, and Pharaoh says the rain. He knows that the rain wasn't falling anymore. So he hardened his heart. Uh. In other words, he was not really repenting. He was pretending to repent to get the stuff that he didn't like to stop. But he was really trying to manipulate God to keep the rain falling because that was a good thing. Uh, and then yeah. when he sees that the rain's not falling either, then he hardens his heart again. Which kind of goes back to talking about the beginning. That the circumstances of life didn't match the reality he wanted, and therefore he responded incorrectly. Yeah. Oh, is that sorry? Well, just one other little thing. So throughout this, throughout this story, and into next week, right? Each one of these, um, each one of these miracles, plagues, whatever you want to use, they're all referred to as signs in in the in the text in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word ot, mm-hmm. which is spelled aleph tav. Um, which to me alludes back to the fact that it's a different Hebrew word, but it's the same concept that Messiah will raise, it will be a sign, ensign, as a lot of times translated in English, an ensign to the peoples. Um, and that, and that and, and most, most of the time, the Hebrew there is the, is the word ness, um, mm-hmm. you know, as, as in. Adonai Nisi, right? Adonai, my banner or my sign. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, we have the Aleph Tav, which is also, you know, a, a word that we identify with Messiah. Mm-hmm. And each one of these things are, each one of these judgments are called an Ot, Aleph Tav. And you also, I think what Aleph Tav reminds me back to Genesis chapter 1, with this random et, it's, it's part of the, right. the grammar of Hebrew, but it actually has no meaning. Um, and so it's almost like this floating all of Tav in the middle of the text, talking about God created the heavens and the earth. And it, it goes back to this idea, I, I really get the parallel between this section of, Genesis, of Exodus and the beginning of Genesis, this idea that God is the master of everything. I mean, these frogs appear out of nothing. I mean, the, the tradition holds that the, that the hail literally vaporized them like midair. Like, I mean, the things that God does, he shows himself to be that creator that can create out of nothing and then turn it back into nothing at will. And um, it's almost like it's almost like a repeat of the Genesis story. It's like obviously you didn't get that I am God and I can do whatever I want. So we're going to show you again the same power I use to create the universe is what I'm going to exhibit in your land now. Yes, mom. All this discussion reminds me of one of the miracles in John nine. It's when he puts the clay on the man's eyes mm. and his blindness is healed. And so the 
the Pharisees of that day are coming and saying, this man's a sinner, how did he heal you? They don't believe he's been healed. They go and ask every day, were you really blind? And they all said yes. And he says, um, he asked them, why are you asking me again? Do you want to become his disciple? And they reviled him and said, you are his disciple. We are Moses' disciples. We know God spoke to Moses, but as this fellow we did not where he comes from. And then the man who's healed goes on later and says, since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone <coughs> opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And I think we get so used to the different miracles, and there were a number of blind men healed that we don't realize how significant that was mm -hmm. in that time. And that was one of the signs of Mashiach, that mm -hmm. he would heal the blind. Same thing with the leper. Yeah, right. And so we see this man talking to them, and these Pharisees or Sadducees, whoever they were, I forget, um, who know the scriptures, who know what Moses taught, yet refuse to see, just as Moses dealt with, the miracle behind this, that this could only come from God, this only could be the hand of God that would do such an incredible miracle, and their hardness of hearts don't allow them to see who this really is. Right, and, and the, okay, if I could just tack onto that, it's also, it's also an argument for the divinity of Messiah. That's right. right. That's right. Because last week's portion, in the conversation right. Mo's having with Hashem, Hashem gets a little upset. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm Who gives sight to the eye? Right. I do. Right. Who gives hearing to the ear and speech to the mouth? You know, what, right. Whatever that passage will create. The, the point is that Hashem says, only I do that. Right. right. And so the fact that the Messiah Yeshua comes along and gives sight to the blind yeah. is to say, I am hey, Hashem I am right. on earth. Right. Yeah, and... Um, Thinking about the flip side of this, going back to my mom's comment about the lack of faith in the Pharisees, uh, the specific Pharisees parts, um, it kind of reminds me in this particular portion one of the commentary notes that uh, Pharaoh is the picture of the Yetzirah. He's the picture of what's inside of us. And uh, Pharaoh comes to the people here, comes to Moses and says, hey, you, you can go, you can go do your worship thing, but pray for me also, and don't go very far. <laughs> and that's really what how the Yetzirah oftentimes does, especially for those of us who are who are seeking righteousness, who want to live a godly life, the Yetzirah doesn't normally come up to you and be like, you know, if you robbed a bank right now, that'd be a great idea. <laughs> so normally it comes up much more sneaky. It's like, okay, okay, you can go do your, your spiritual thing, but, but pray for me also. Just don't go very far. And that's kind of the idea, that, that subtlety, that sneakiness of Pharaoh. Um, my, my, my dad was pointing out that Pharaoh, he wore a, a headdress of a snake. He has in the, the commentary of the sages oftentimes equate Pharaoh with a snake. And you kind of get that imagery here. It's like Pharaoh's, he's slithering in, kind of like almost trying to undo them through the, un, through the underneath to say like, okay, fine, you can go do your thing, but make sure you come back. I think it's hilarious to me that um, throughout this whole story, Moses never says we'll return. He's like, let's go three days in the wilderness. You can guess what happens after that, but you know, that's their plan. We're gonna be honest. We never said we were coming back. We never said. Greg and then my father-in-law. You can't prove that. Listen, this year we've been kind of going through it. It's been really easy to teach the girls about this because of how visual and like oh, right. unusual this part of the Torah. Cool. It's so funny. See, we we have this like kids Bible, and we've also been reading like the actual Torah portion, and so we already read like the ten plagues in the kids Bible. It's got pictures and everything, and so we, uh, it like dawned on her when we were reading the Aliyah. She was like, "This is from the Torah." 
<laughs> and we were like, that's yes, awesome. that's exactly what we're reading. <laughs> anyway, but it just it hit me that like, you know, it's very easy for stories like this to really like shine through as like just unbelievable events and stuff like that. But then thinking about what ended up happening to the children of Israel in the wilderness result from all of this was basically like unbelief after unbelief and all kinds of issues and so it wasn't like enough, right? And so it's just as we've been going through it it hit me that like it's not just about remembering this amazing thing that had happened. It's really about like who did the amazing thing. Right. right. Which is why it always kind of bookends everything. Hashem started the plague, Hashem ended the plague. Like right. Hashem was in control. So like he's right. the one that controlled everything. So this is really just the story of Hashem. Absolutely. And it's just like that that I think is important to kind of remember in order to strengthen our faith where it's like it's not just we're supposed to try to remember these these things we're trying we're supposed to remember what like our great savior creator did right. at this particular time and how that's the same person that could help us throughout what we're dealing with today absolutely no, that's absolutely correct and i think that's one of the reasons why we get you mentioned a couple times today Purim is the next big one that we're coming up to um the book of esther is like one of the sages favorite books because it takes that idea and then it applies it to normal life it says the miracles we often see, and as you say, like for children, it's so easy to grasp this. And I think as adults, it's sometimes easy to grasp this because God can do miracles. It's great. But the understanding that God is at work in the day-to-day, the mundane, is very difficult because we don't see God doing things. We see things working the way that, well, the way that they should work. And sometimes the way that we wish they wouldn't work. We don't understand why it's happening that way. And the book of Esther is very similar to this, and it's, it's expression of God's power, but it takes, it takes off the the imagery of the miracles so that, as Dad was saying earlier about the simplicity of God, it gets to the point where it's like, this only could happen if God was in charge. Mm -hmm. But this is all looks normal to the human eye. Yes, sir? Beautiful segue. Um, This year I've seen myself in Pharaoh so much. And uh, instant amongst my life, I'm I'm seeing a, a beautiful young girl turn into a woman a man receive a son and the, the, just the whole beauty of that that uh, Brock and Jenny uh, are with a child this, this year alone I have gained three grandchildren you know I go on and on that, that the miracles are all around me and yet at times I harden my heart mm-hmm. and I don't React appropriately, mm-hmm. and I don't recognize and praise him openly. Um, mm. I, I just think that, uh, as much as we read about the the wonderful redemption that we'll celebrate in a couple of months, as much as we read about the fact that Hashem is Hashem, right? We need to remember that he still is. Pharaoh's Pharaoh's not that bad a guy. He wasn't, you know, specifically laid out in history as being the worst guy and therefore I'll use him. No, he's just like me. Hmm. And I need to uh, I need to remember that and I need to recognize that um, it's he's working, as you pointed out in the beginning. He is working all around us, all the time. And God forbid that I should just ignore it mm-hmm. or just assume you know, she could do that. 
I mean, I've got magicians that can you know, make this magic happen. Right. 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 So, and I think that's one of the things that's even, especially in our modern world, becomes a real risk, <coughs> because um, uh, in the same way that the Egyptians they had their magic, they could do whatever. We have tech. No. We have technology. We have we science. Have we have we Siri. Have Siri. Uh, ah! We have Apple, and they can do basically anything. And it's, it creates that sense of invincibility. It creates that idea that somehow <laughs> I'm self-sufficient. <laughs> And so we look at ourselves, and we quote Hashem and say, I will be what I will be. And in reality, that's, yeah, right, exactly. In reality, we need, to, we, need to, we need to look at it the opposite way and realize that actually Hashem is in charge. And our power is really only at His permission. Amen. Yes, sir. So, as awesome as this story of Exodus is, and the plagues and the, just, you know, when we sit and we talk about it and we have a whole festival but, but we recount the story and, you know, and just the, the sheer magnitude of Hashem's power is just always so incredibly, you know, awe-inspiring. And yet, with all that, I'm always reminded of the prophecy in Yirmiyahu, uh, Jeremiah, and it says... However, behold, days are coming, mm-hmm. the word of Adonai, when it will no longer be said, as Adonai lives who took out the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But rather, as Adonai lives who took out the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had scattered them, Amen. and I shall return them to their land, Hello. which I gave to their forefathers. So the day is coming... Soon and in our days. Probably feels like it could be pretty soon. The day is coming when we will not even remember this story because it will pale in comparison to what Hashem is about to do at the end of days. As he brings brings the final redemption and brings all of his people out from wherever they are. So just think about that. I mean, as we sit here and and, and kind of go over the story of the, ex, uh, the exodus from Egypt, and we think how just how incredible it was. A day will literally come when we won't even remember this story, Amen. because it will just be overshadowed by what God is going to do. What was the reference you read? That is Jeremiah chapter 16, 16. verse 14 15. 16. 16. Amen. It's coming. Yes, sir. Uh, we love to play it, uh, pray Aleni, and and the ending of it is exactly is exactly that. When you start when you consider when you consider the setting of uh, standing looking at Jericho and the and the devastation that God was going to bring on Jericho, and knowing that it was going to happen exactly the way God said, and as Joshua began this prayer and how it finishes with the end of days, and then the ad- admonition to us that that. You can plan a conspiracy, and it will not stand. It'll be you know, no. uh, and that his name will be, his he will be one, and his name will be one. And that goes back to that same thing. It's just this unbelievable simplicity of God not only being in control of everything, but being acknowledged as ruler of all. Amen. Right. And ultimately, understanding that everything exists at His behest. It is not nothing happens that surprises Him. Nothing catches Him off guard. And, and, so I think, and I think this goes back to what we were saying. Like you're talking about being, being Pharaoh on the inside. 
that one of the God's gracious things is that he has this on the calendar every single mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. We come back to this portion to remember that our lives that don't look like fiery hail falling from the sky are miracles. And that we have to recognize who's really in charge of all those things. Mm-hmm. Sir, if you would close us out in prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and our King, we thank you for the Word of God, for the privilege of coming together as community and studying it. And Father, for the way that it pierces our hearts and causes us to repent. I pray that you would help us to trust you, to see your miracles for what they are, that you are in charge, the King of the universe. We pray for your soon coming, that Messiah would reign in Jerusalem soon and in our days. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you. Well done, Joshua.